Welcome everybody back after Christmas break here to Junior Resource Investing. I'm going to start out as always with my disclaimer. Please remember this is not financial advice, right? I'm not your financial advisor. My guests are not your financial advisors. This podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes only. For the full written disclaimer, please check the YouTube notes below. Otherwise, though, I'm pleased to present our latest guest, Marshall Colville, uh, who is the CEO of Luminex Resources. Uh, Luminex is a gold and precious metals developer operating just a few kilometers south of the famous Fruta del Norte mine in Ecuador. It has a multi-million ounce deposit already with lots of prospectivity remaining. It trades on the TSXV under the ticker LR and on OTCQX under LUMIF. And Marshall's joined here today with head of IR, Scott Hicks from Luminex. Guys, Scott, Marshall, it's nice to see you today. How are you? Yeah, great to see you, Matthew. Actually, Scott's our VP of Corporate Development besides uh, IR and everything else in communications. <laughs> Where's a couple hats, eh? Yeah, part. Uh, so I'll start out the way we always do. Scott, I'll, I'll send this one your way. Why don't you start out 30-second elevator pitch on, on Luminex? Why is it compelling and why should investors care about your story? Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. So this is uh, where we had all the projects in Ecuador when we completed a spin out from Lumina Gold in 2018. And it's it's a large land package, over 100,000 hectares. We have a base asset, Condor, which has a six and a half million ounce gold resource. Uh, we did a PEA on three million ounces of that in an area called Condor North. We're drilling right there right now. Um, we're having great success on a new underground area called Cuyas West. Uh, so we're hoping to expand the underground resource and rescope the PEA to a lower capital, uh, higher grade project than what we put up in 2021, which was a good project at uh, the $1,600 gold uh, level we looked at it at that time. And then we also have partnerships with Anglo-American, who's going to be drilling a copper porphyry here shortly, and Jogmec. Uh, who's a, a Japanese group uh, drilling on another copper property we have. So it's a large land package, uh, lots of prospectivity with an existing resource base in a country that's been underexplored over the years. Mm -hmm. And you're right, you do have a number of different uh, land packages. The focus of this conversation will be on Condor. Obviously, that's your flagship. Um, you kind of mentioned it. I'm just always curious to try to get to the origins of things. Could you just discuss... The spinoff from Lumina, it was August of 2018, so it's been a few years. You're your own thing now, but what was the genesis of the spinoff? When did you realize that this was going to be a necessity? And, and maybe you just kind of talk us through that. I'll go ahead and take that one, Scott. You know, basically, we had all our assets in Lumina Gold at the time, our entire portfolio in Ecuador. And basically, the Congreos project in Lumina Gold, which is the only asset today, was being advanced. Right now, we're in a pre-feasibility study mode. So in 2018, the idea was to take all these lesser uh, developed assets that need more exploration. Some of that was grassroots. Some like Condor was to expand the known resource there and, and do a PEA. So everything other than the Congreos project ended up in Luminex. And that gave us the ability, you know, to track transact um, Lumina Gold if necessary or any one of these other uh, properties that we have within Luminex today. So. For instance, if Anglo-American hits, you know, that's set up in a structure that we can move it out, uh, do anything we want financial engineering wise with it. So that was kind of the gist of why we went and spun all these other properties out. Perfect. So the question I always have, and you know, it's a, it's a, 
think it's valid. Obviously, this is a bit different when it's a spin-out because you already so intimately know both your projects because they were previously under one under one roof. But the question I always have for executives is that, do you ever struggle to find a balance when you're, when you're CEO of two different companies? If I'm not wrong, Marshall, you're CEO of Lumina as well, right? So, yes. you know, it's a little bit different with a spinoff because, you know, this was previously one organization, you know, intimately. But yeah, is there ever a struggle to find a balance between the two? Do you ever find because Lumina is a larger company and it's 10 million ounces of gold, if I'm not incorrect, that it that maybe times comes to dominate your time more than maybe the little sister Luminex does? So uh, Lumina's got about 17 ounces, 17 million ounces of gold right now and about 2.2 million pounds of copper. But it's a mirrored management team. We've taken the management team and uh, we're able to work across it. There's only a few exceptions. Um, we talk regularly. Sometimes uh, Luminex gets more of my attention. Sometimes Congrejos uh, and Lumina Gold does. But we try to balance it. And I think, you know, if you look back at the whole Lumina Group's history back to 2004 when I joined Ross Beatty and Lumina Copper Days, we had multiple companies. So, you know, we've worked in this environment with a lot of the same management team, you know, all that time period. Mm-hmm. And I will, I'm going to talk about the team here in a moment, but I uh, I just wanted to ask you, Marshall, do you mind just running through your career in terms of just M and A specifically, perhaps? Yeah. So let me let me kind of go back. I started I started in industry. I'm a geologist by training, and I started working for major mining companies in copper and gold exploration for the early part of my career, and then I moved into kind of the consulting engineering side, you know, geotechnical engineering, that sort of stuff with Golder Associates. Then I was president with Pincock Allen and Holt. And as far as M&A goes, um, I, I put together a deal where uh, Hart Krauser, a consulting company, acquired Pincock Allen and Holt, and I ran that. And Pincock Allen and Holt did uh, probably at the time I was there from 93 to 2002, we did about 65, 70% of our work for banks on non-recourse project finance, M&A, and we were the independent engineer on it. So I did quite a few projects uh, in that time frame where I was directly involved in these projects. And then in 2004, I joined Ross. Um, you know, in the M&A, we had uh, Lumina Copper, basically had 10 uh, copper projects in, in mining-friendly jurisdictions, Canada, Peru, um, Argentina and Chile at the time. And it was a real option play initially, getting all these copper plays together. And, you know, once you control a property, you have to do work, so you have to add value. And we did that, and we did a whole series of uh, spin-outs. Everything, and it's kind of a similar story to the Lumina Gold spin-out with Luminex. We had everything in Lumina Copper, and we did our first deal on what's the Casaroni's mine today, where we we sold that uh, to Pan Pacific, uh, a Japanese mining company. And then we spun all the other assets out into Northern Peru Copper uh, and, and two other companies. And I came in as CEO of Northern Peru Copper. We advanced Northern Peru Copper to a pre-feasibility study, and then that was acquired by Jiangxi Copper and Chinaman Metals. And then subsequently, we went on to Taka Taka, and that was acquired by First Quantum. You know, and these were big uh, acquisitions, sort of a half a billion dollar U.S. acquisition. So that was kind of the whole history of the group. And then we had our own private equity um, for company that we put together with our own money. 
And we got into Ventana Gold and very early, and we were involved in advancing a lot of the technical work with Ventana Gold, and that was taken out by Ike Batista. So we did quite well on that. And then we had, uh, you know, through the uh, fund that we had, uh, we acquired Anfield Gold, or Anfield Nickel, and then it morphed into Anfield Gold. Anfield Nickel, we sold that asset to Cunico. Anfield Gold, we sold that to Sarabi. And then that was how we entered Ecuador after that um, with a new venture in Lumina Gold. And we came into the Congreos project, um, you know, with a financing. So we financed our way into it, put a management team in, and then ultimately acquired all the assets that we have in Ecuador. So long history personally and, and group-wise with M&A uh, activities. Mm -hmm. Always, you know, as a, as a retail investor, that's always a huge part of my own investment due diligence, right, is, is the history of management and their success, right? And obviously, so this is a decent segue, people hear the name Ross Beattie, obviously that names, that means something, right? Do you mind just exploring or explaining, you know, his involvement in the company on a day-to-day -day basis or on a philosophical level? I mean, where, where, you know, how much time or how much involvement does he have? Go ahead, Scott. I'll let you kind of head this one up and I'll come in behind you on it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, he's 20% uh, of the equity right now um, in Luminex. You know, obviously, he's very supportive across the companies. Um, you know, back in, in May, June, for example, when we saw the, the market pull back there, you know, he put up a, a personal line of credit to fund Lumina because we didn't want to raise equity at those share prices. Um, so he's, you know, I'd say he's active at, at uh, you know, most board meetings, if not all board meetings. Um certainly in the loop on all strategy um for the company anything that's going on so he's uh he's quite active and has been since marshall joined the group in in 2003. Uh, you know these are his development companies so obviously it's a bit of a different strategy than, than equinox gold or pan american silver but um you know it's uh it is something he's actively still involved in yeah perfect and again i can't you know again part of my due diligence that team having a strong team makes such a difference right i'll, I'll follow the right team most anywhere on the world on the globe right so let's just switch gears here though and talk more nuts and bolts just share structure right you know just can we just verbalize maybe this is this is this is one for you scott but can you talk us through who owns what you know how much is management own institutional high net worth retail Sure, sure. Yeah, so right now we're about 132 million shares outstanding. You know, we had about 12 million warrants out from the last financing. They're about 55 cents strike. You know, for, for reference, we're trading about 31 cents today. Uh, so about a, about a $40 million Canadian market cap. Like I said, Ross owns about 20% of the company. Management holds about 5%. We have a group of Ecuadorian investors, uh, about five gentlemen that own 14% of the company. And then the largest institutional fund is Route 1 out of San Francisco. They hold about 11% of the company. And then there's kind of 10% of the, uh, the, the rest of it is held by other funds. So, you know, in aggregate, we kind of know we're about 60%, 70% of the stock sits. And then the rest would be a, a retail float. Okay. And then Scott and Marshall, one for both of you here. You know, just what's your average cost basis we don't mind sharing? Oh, when we spun it out, um, I think I was the first trade at 90 cents. Uh, but uh, no, I, I think most of the financings, you know, over the piece have been done between, um, you know, 60 and 70 cents with the exception of the last um, financing at 38 cents. So, you know, management always participates in the financings and, and takes um, a big percentage of them. So, you know, it's a it's I don't know what the exact number is, but I would guess our cost base is probably around 
50 cents these days um, since it's been spun out. Now, you might talk about the uh, spin out and the share ratio also when we did that. Yeah, fair enough. So if you were in it um, before September 2018, you know, you would have got 0.15 shares in Luminex had you had a share of Lumina at the time. Um, so that that's how, you know, we would have our, our initial base of shares from that. Um, but then obviously there's been numerous financing since then. This is an ongoing, this is a theme that it's not particularly pertaining to you and individuals specifically, but, you know, I think a lot of times retail complains that, oh, we're always late to the party, right? That, that you know, we're, here we are 50 cents and management's in at 10 or 20 cents. And this yeah. is one of those moments in the market where, you know, you can get in and so many of these companies that I talk to, you can get in at prices comparable, comparable or even better than insiders, right? So, you know, this is, I think people are always afraid, but when, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, especially when it's your own, right? And yeah, this, this is an opportunity for people to actually have very, very competitive uh, average cost basis. Absolutely. Um, Scott, I had a question for you regarding overhang. It is impressive, right? You have 130 million shares out and only 12 million uh, warrants. Is this just a matter? So obviously you've been fairly successfully at raising capital without it being too expensive for you guys, right? I mean, is this, are you successful? Previous finance things, half warrants, no warrants, full warrants that just expire after a couple of years, or how do you structure your financings? Let, let, me, start, let, let me start on this one because this goes back to the whole Lumina Group kind of philosophy. You know, we um, basically never did warrants through all the Lumina Copper and, and, and the, the subsequent companies. And then we got into this last financing where it was the first time uh, that we had warrants, you know, related to a financing. So that's your segue, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, typically Ross, because he's such a cornerstone, um, helps us set the price and, and the terms. And, you know, I, we do, do get a lot of complaints that we don't offer warrants. You know, the market was obviously in a, in a rougher place last year. So that was the first time that we, we offered it. Um, and, you know, I think there was a lot of a lot of people who wanted to come in that were, you know, optimistic about where where it goes with the drilling we were on to, as well as some of the partnerships we have in the background. You know, when Anglo was going to start drilling, they'd taken a little longer than we wanted to. So, you know, it was a way to get some some reward to shareholders who've been patient as well, not just the market conditions. But, yeah, it's not usual for us. I mean, it's always always nice to being able to, to finance without warrants, always a nice touch. Obviously, yeah, it's kind of a testament to your team and your, your family of companies, right? So, no, always nice to see a nice, nice clean share structure, not, not too much downward pressure if you start to run here. So, switching gears here, kind of on the same topic here, just about kind of corporate financings. What's your cash on hand at the moment? Yeah, so at the end of September, we were about $4 million US. Um, you know, we continue to drill through... Q4 and we're continuing to drill now. So, you know, we'll come back to the market uh, in the first half of the year for sure. Um, we want to keep drilling. Uh, you know, the results we've been putting out from Camp and Los Cuyos uh, have been pretty, pretty amazing. And frankly, actually some of the best intercepts we've had ever on the property. So we want to, we want to keep chasing it. Mm -hmm. And that's something I wanted to mention too, is, you know, you, you folks are, you plunked down 10 or $15 million dollars every year into the ground or so. And so this is not a little small cap $40 million company that only does a couple million dollars in, in exploration every year. There's a sizable annual exploration program going on, right? Uh, so when you are exploring the, what's your burn rate, monthly burn rate? Yeah, so, you know, the, the drilling costs for reference right now for us in Ecuador are about 250 bucks US a meter. Um, you know, our holding costs for the properties in camp would probably be in the neighborhood of, 
you know, $4 million a year. Um, you know, we, we do spread that out a little bit. The camp we use obviously for some of the partnerships and, um, and we use it to run exploration throughout the country on kind of all our properties with the exception of the Anglo partnership. So, um, you know, the camp plays a, a critical role in supporting exploration on all the properties, not just Condor, but that, that's kind of the general GNA. Um, you know, last year we would have drilled in the neighborhood of just over 10,000 meters. Um, since we picked the property up in 2016, uh, probably closing in on about 45,000 meters of drilling at Condor mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. And I will get to that. I'm going to ask you to break that down for us here in a moment. Um, I just wanted to ask one more here just to close out this section. You've referenced this with, with Ross's uh, personal line of credit for you, but uh, how is your strategy? You know, obviously the market conditions for metals has been, uh, shall we say, abysmal for a, few, for a while here. Uh, how, has, has this impacted your strategy or exploration strategy or corporate strategy? How, how has it impacted it? How has your strategy evolved to match these corporate, con, corporate con, or sorry, market conditions rather? Yeah, so maybe I'll start, Marcia, you can fill in. I, you know, the, I think our two most obvious responses to, to what you're talking about would be one, which we kind of already had out of the gate, is looking to partner on these other land packages. I mean, obviously, over the years, we brought in you know, first quantum, uh, we've brought in DHP, Anglo and Jogmec and, you know, have, have, you know, had over $40 million of non-dilutive capital come into the company for exploration and payments during that time. So that was one way to mitigate. Uh, so we're not going to raise all that capital ourselves, um, to progress these projects in Ecuador. Uh, the second thing, you know, obviously we, we put out a PEA in 2021 and that was really to look at, you know, the 3 million ounces we had at Condor North there. Um, but it had, you know, a reasonable amount of capital with it, $600 million of capital to build the project. And, and in this type of market, people want smaller, more buildable projects. So as a result, you know, we've gone back and we've chased the higher grade underground areas more um, to try to rescope the project and bring up a smaller capital project. And I think, you know, the drilling we've done so far has been very successful at that. Um, so that's kind of the second, I'd say, response to the market conditions. Interesting. So now I'm going to be jumping around here a bit, but so you are, this is a question I had for you later on here. You know, obviously, yeah, I think I mentioned this off the start. You have a strong, yeah, like you say, strong NPV, good ounces, lots of inferred potential. Uh, you know, NPV is nice. NPV to CapEx ratio is a little, a little more middling, and then your IRR needs work, right? So, like you say, it's a large capex, long-term project. There's a lot of, there's a lot of meat on the bone, right? Like, let's not, you're not scraping the bottom of the barrel here for prospectivity. But I guess, how much are you? And you kind of reference this, Scott. So this is why I ask this now: is how much have you changed your, like, are you almost going to have to put out a new PEA? Or how much has your exploration or development strategy changed with? with the market prices, market conditions. Yeah, I think the real uh, change that happened is the discovery of Cuyas West and then going back mm -hmm. into the camp zone where we still had areas open. Um, and these are both underground targets. So we have a press release that uh, is coming out tomorrow that basically has um, some camp zone uh, results. And, and we can talk a little bit about that uh, more here. We're after the market at this point. The um, the Cuyas West Zone really changed things where we've got sort of five to 10 meter widths, true widths basically, and, and five, six grams, seven gram and higher sort of intercepts. So that's changed kind of the focus of the project here. And basically what we're looking at now is 
in the 25,000 ton per day scenario in the PEA, about 2.5,000 tons per day were underground at the camp zone. There were about 600,000 ounces of gold in that. And now we're looking at kind of a similar type um, zone, developing that at Kuyas. And if we can do that, get sort of between a million, million and a half uh, ounces of gold, higher grade, underground, near surface, camp zones right at the surface, looks like Kuyas is as well. Then we'll look at, you know, can you do a 4,000, 5,000 ton per day uh, CIL plant there, have a lower initial capital, have higher grades in the early years, and then look at later in the mine life, bringing in some of these open pit targets. So basically what we've done is we've refocused that. We're likely to go finish up the, the drilling campaign. Um, you know, we have a, a drill program planned for 2023, where we go back and then continue to drill down dip and along strike in the Cuyas West Zone, go back into some open areas in the camp zone and drill those. And then we'll probably get to the point where, uh, depending on the results, if it looks favorable, we'll go put out a new uh, resource estimate. We'll rescope a PEA um, on the underground targets initially. In, in the old PEA that we put out, we were starting underground and two open pit targets simultaneously. This way we'll be able to reduce capital and we think we're headed there. So the, the focus of the exploration work next year is on that that approach, basically. And that's, well, that's camp in Cuyas West primarily. And, and that's then we're exciting. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you don't no, go for it, Marshall. You're the one to talk. You're not. Yeah, the, the, the other area, too, we've had a hell of a time getting into this area is up in Prometador, very steep country. But we have a kilometer long surface anomaly. It's an open pit target. And it also looks like it may have some underground potential as well. And, and we're working to get into that area right now. We're getting pretty close. We've got a lot of the infrastructure in place and hope to be drilling that uh, next month. So. You know, that's another area that we're looking at with the exploration dollars uh, for next year. Excellent. And so, yeah, you're touching a lot of things I want to touch on here. I'm just trying to stay, keep my keep my jumbled thoughts organized here. Uh, the one question I have, because to clarify, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with Luminex, Cuyus West is not a part of this PEA. It's not a part of the resource estimate, right? So, again, again, so when I'm talking about, you know, again, as an investor, you know, you're not buying, I'm not here to buy things at fair value. I'm trying to find reasons and trying to find discounts and companies with problems that are solvable, right? Companies where, you know, the, the, the solution maybe hasn't been fully caught onto by the market yet. And so this is where Luminex fits that for me, where you have, like we've talked about, very prospective resource, lots of, you know, ounces in the ground, high CapEx costs, but you also have pretty clear paths to lowering CapEx and increasing the NPV through Cuyus West and through these other, other deposits that haven't even been included in a, in, a, in, a, in a resource yet, right? So I guess the question I have for you is updated resource 2023 at some point, uh, how many meters of drilling uh, will have go that, pardon me, how many meters of drilling are going to go into that that haven't been counted yet? And if I could ask you to, knowing that this is a forward-looking statement through and through, you know, do you have a target for ounces to add, if you don't mind, if that's something you can feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, so as far as the ounces goes in the forward-looking statement, you know, I mentioned the 600,000 ounces that we had at the camp zone. Hopefully we can get that up to maybe 800,000 ounces and, and bring in, you know, maybe four to 600,000 at Kuyas. Um, and that kind of fits within the one million to million and a half ounce sort of number that I threw out earlier. So that's that's kind of the target there. 
we're working on a drill plan right now to understand how many um, how many meters we need to drill to get Cuyas West in the indicated category. You know, we're drilling inferred. it or inferred. Sorry, thank you, Scott. We're uh, drilling it basically on seventy-five meter uh, centers right now. So we're we're in the process of coming up with those numbers. So um, you know, I think a, a firm number right now is a little bit premature, but we're sort of looking at maybe six to twelve thousand meter kind of range is what we're looking at. Yeah, decent. And so maybe let's just run through the resource estimate here. And again, I'll have visuals up because it can get a little bit of confusing to have a bunch of numbers on the run here. But uh, so right now, in your in your PEA, it was. 2.7 million ounces MNI gold equivalent, the silver quick kicker, and then 4.3 million inferred. So a total of just south of 7 million gold equivalent ounces of which this is what I found interesting with your company, right? This is you know, one that I haven't done, didn't do a lot of research on until maybe this last couple of months, but you know, a lot of it is at Santa Barbara, which wasn't even really the focus of this past drilling campaign, right? Do you mind just kind of running through again, assume that, you know, there's going to be a map here for us, but do you mind running through, Santa Barbara versus that North Condor and why maybe you set aside Santa Barbara for the time being to explore these other deposits? Scott, you want to take a shot at this? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, they're two slightly different types of mineralization. You know, Santa Barbara would be uh, a classic uh, porphyry system and it's got both gold and copper in the mix. Condor North would be a intermediate uh, sulfidation system. So, you know, a key part of if Santa Barbara got eventually got developed eventually would be recovering the copper. And this is this is not too dissimilar from what we see at our Congreos deposit in Luminate Gold. So we're pretty familiar with that style of deposit. Um, it is lower grade gold. It's quite large, as you point out. Um, we looked at, you know, tracking it to a plant in the north. Um, we looked at what would happen if you didn't have the copper in there. It just didn't really make a lot of sense at that point. So that's really why we focused on a simpler CIL circuit with the, the mineralization in the north. Um, and, you know, I think in the future, there's certainly areas around El Hito, El Hito North, where we've actually done a little bit of drilling on the copper side um, that might warrant a flotation plant and a and plant in the central area there around the porphyry area. Um, but that just wasn't where we thought we were going to get the most bang for our buck in the near term. So that's why we focused on Condor North. If the other, the other thing that happened there too is after we were doing the work at Santa Barbara, we made the discovery at the Camp Zone. Camp Zone, before we did the work there, was totally unknown deposit. It sat right underneath our camp or it sits right underneath our camp um, there. So, you know, we focused on that. We got a lot of high grade mineralization out of it that kind of changed the scope of the, you know, our view on, on the project. And, you know, that's kind of another big reason why we ended up that direction. So Santa Barbara, even though it has a you know, fairly healthy resource, just because of complexities in terms of actual production or development, uh, is kind of just on the back burner for now. That's just kind of in the back pocket for future future Luminexes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and it's uh, had a lot of drilling. I mean, if you look on the, uh, the resource estimate sheet, there's a fair amount of indicated there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a question I had about your Condor North. Uh, prior to you, prior to Luminex, how much historical drilling has there been on it? Do you know off the top of your head, Scott, there was, there was, was there? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to go look at a breakout, but, yeah, think, you know, it, there, there's. Jack. And it, I think it was about 100,000 meters. Okay. 
Yeah, well, that would be between Santa Barbara and mm-hmm. Condor North. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the drilling at uh, Soledad and Cuyas, you know, has brought some indicated in there. Uh, so those pit, the pits were quite thoroughly drilled. Um, you know, Camp we drilled just over twenty five thousand meters, uh, and then Cuyas West was was new last year. So, um, but it's all in our technical report there on the on the website that kind of breaks it out by by area. Sorry, I don't have that on the top of my head. No, no reason. I've got that here somewhere too, just to sake a conversation here. Um, just one last question here around the land package. Are there any any royalties or remaining payments or obligations on it? Uh, no. So you would just have the typical royalty to the government, um, which is which every uh, deposit would have in Ecuador, and, and that's a range that that gets negotiated when you go to um, do your investment protection agreement. So Lundin Gold, uh, just south or sorry, just north of us, pays. Um, Five percent. Since then, they've lowered the royalty range um, to as low as three percent. Um, so we'll see. You know, we're further along in Lumina Gold and closer to an IPA. We're fairly confident, based on discussions with the government, we could get a three percent royalty there. Um, but we'll see what happens at Condor down the road. Um, we own this asset ninety eight point seven percent. You know, it's a it's kind of an interesting point. We we picked up an extra eight point seven percent just by diluting the the other owner out uh, that didn't contribute capital, and uh, you know the market didn't really react to that, even though it was basically adding you know nine percent ownership for free um, to the assets. So you know that's something we got done last year. So maybe just to finish off exploration here, I'm going to ask you to recap 2022. You've already kind of touched on it here, but we'll kind of clean it up. You know, how many meters, where did they go? Uh, and maybe assays that are any assays that are, that are outstanding. And then maybe after that, do you mind? And again, I know that, you know, Marshall, you said that it's still up in the air a bit. Your, your, your 2023 plans are still flexible or still fluid, but can you at least give us a general direction? But yeah, 2022 first and then 2023. All right, Scott, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, you know, in 2022, from our perspective, Almost all the focus was really around camp drilling in Cuyas West. Um, you know, as far as holes released, I think we've released up to hole nine at Cuyas West. Um, we've got, I think, hole, out to hole 14 at the lab now. So we should have some more results out from, from that deposit in January. Um, camp, as Marshall mentioned, will have a release out tomorrow with kind of the remaining camp holes uh, that we had drilled. Um, in, in some new areas that we think we'll be able to expand the resource on. And there's a, there's a good figure uh, in that press release that kind of shows you where those drill holes have come outside of the block model um, and where we think we've expanded it or improved the existing block model. You know, we worked hand in hand with uh, IMC, our mine planners, to design that drill program to, uh, to enhance it. So last year was, uh, you know, a little bit north of 10,000 meters. Uh, we'd like to do probably something in that zone uh, in 2023. And, uh, you know, we think we've got certainly more than enough targets to justify uh, and warrant that level of drilling. And then, then, you know, Matt, I know we've spent most of the time talking about Condor, but but I do think it's important to mention as part of the 2023 plan here, and you might have been going this way anyway, but, um, you know, we're going to have Anglo-Americans starting to drill on our Pegasus property really soon. And that's a, a copper porphyry target. Um, you know, I know people who've been invested for a long time have been very patient waiting for them to drill. Um, but I think we're finally on the cusp of that. And, um, you know, they were out of the field for all of COVID, but um, getting pretty close. They're gonna start out with a 3,200 meter drill program there. Um, and, you know, if they had a large scale copper porphyry, obviously 
that has the potential to uh, to change the story as well. Yeah, and on that angle, on that Anglo property at Pegasus, the Medusa target that they're looking at initially does have some limited drilling information historically, and, and plus our geologists did a fair amount of work there, so we know there's definitely a, a porphyry copper system there. The geophysics that was done subsequently, and you can see a couple figures in our deck, um, you know, that shows a real classic porphyry copper signature. So pretty excited to see them get out there and drill that. I think uh, we're hoping for some good results. Mm -hmm. Just the nature of the beast with these interviews is it kind of can't help but focus on the flagship. And that's not to say, yeah, you're, uh, Luminex yeah. particularly seems like you have quite a decent little suite of, of projects on the go here. Just a sure. follow-up question about Pegasus. Pegasus A and B, is that what they're yeah. yeah, Pegasus A and B. Uh, how deep is your target? How deep are we going here for this porphyry? So I think, Scott, they're looking at six holes with that initial program, right? Yeah, I think it was actually five over the 3,200 meters. So, yeah, yeah kind of six six to 700 meters is, is rough targeting for, for the holes. And how much of that is cover? You know, it's pretty – there's outcrops near the surface. So, you know, where the saprolite begins and ends and, and where you get into, um, you know, good solid rock – um, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but it's fairly near surface target. Um, it looks like there's a pyrite halo developed. So once you get through that, you're down into the, the primary porphyry. Mm -hmm. No, that's exciting. Um, question here, just to finish off maybe the drilling discussion. Uh, where do your assays go in Ecuador and what's the turnaround time? I know when I talk to Canadian companies, it's still two, three months waiting for assays, which just just kills any momentum as an ex, as an explorer, or even in the market, right? So, what? How are you finding things in Ecuador? It's pretty much uh, we're using ALS, and it's pretty much four to eight weeks kind of time frame in average. I would say it's gotten okay. better lately, a little bit quicker. Yeah, you are finding improvements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was yeah, it was. I think it was Puma. Puma Resources. I don't think he'll. I don't think he'll get mad at me for naming him. But yeah, they. You know, he was expressing frustration. I think it was three month turnaround, which just. I don't know. Uh, how do you even begin to organize a drilling season or a drilling campaign with three month turnaround, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, I, yeah, we got, we got into that a little bit when we first started to drill Kuyas, and and the initial idea was put a few holes in, get the assay results back, and and kind of see what it looked like. But the visuals mm -hmm. turned out so good. Um, that we continue to drill on blindly without some of the assays, and, and fortunately, it, it worked out for us. But hmm. yeah, you always you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself with a new target without that assay information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears here, I want to talk about uh, jurisdiction and ESG, just because obviously anybody who follows geopolitics or Central American politics knows that Ecuador has been in the news in recent months, right? So obviously yeah. this is going to be a fairly large portion of, of anybody's due diligence on Luminex. So I guess you know, just general overview, I don't want to get super detailed in this because it's some months old at this point, but I guess kind of a two-pronged question can you tell us maybe just, you know, maybe this is the elevator pitch on the Ecuadorian protests, but, uh, you know, what's their origin? Why did they start? Uh, and then part two is, you know, the resolution. Where is it now? How resolved is it? How ongoing is it? Well, what you got to realize a couple of things when you talk about the protests, you know, this was um, the Kanaye, primarily the one of the larger indigenous groups um, in the country. 
And before I get too deep in the Kanaya, you got to also look at, at the indigenous population in the country and, you know, in the region that we operate with the Condor Project, there are indigenous communities there. One thing you have to remember, these aren't monolithic groups. Um, there's subgroups and a lot of it comes down locally. Um, and if you look at, um, let me put the protests aside for a second, but if you look at two of the most successful mines that have been built, um, Mirador and Fruta del Norte, you know, they're in indigenous areas. So, you, you know, you can work with these communities, you can get the local support, you can work with the government to permit these projects. And, you know, both those projects, uh, Fruta initially was sub a billion dollars, and then Mirador was plus a billion dollar uh, initial uh, capital, and you were able to get international financing on, on both projects. Well, the Chinese primarily finance Mirador, but uh, on Fruta, you were able to get syndicated international financing. So with with in areas where you did have the indigenous community. So a lot of it comes down to local, how you how you deal locally with the with the communities and but if you step back to um, the broader sense of what the uh, the demonstrations were about. It wasn't focused on mining. Mining was just one part of the indigenous demands. A lot of it had to do with high inflation. And in Ecuador, the inflation rate is quite a bit less than it's been in the U.S. It's been around three to four percent. Um, so it was impacting, you know, the poor communities in the country, the rising fuel prices that that in turn rise prices for transportation, buses, that sort of thing. So basically, you also have to realize that these groups are politically motivated and, and trying, if you go back to the last election, Yaku Perez, who uh, was an indigenous leader, um, almost made it into the final round uh, of the election. So there's a political component to it. There's a practical component where, where the local communities that are poor are impacted the most by inflation and COVID and that sort of thing. And basically, you know, Kunai took to the street, organized several groups and, you know, they occupied, uh, I think it was about, I think 16, 18 days roughly. Does that sound right, Scott? Um, they, yeah. had, they had blockades. Interesting thing is we were able to operate all the way through that time. And uh, at Condor, we came close to, um, you know, a week's supply of fuel, but we got, Got through it no problem, so you know that was that was what happened. And in the end, they agreed to a dialogue table with President Lasso. And um, you know the biggest the biggest issue on indigenous lands is Ecuador was a signature to ILO one sixty nine, and you know basically Ecuador agreed to that, but they didn't put implementing regulations in place. So. A lot of the indigenous groups look at it that they want they want consultation and consent, and they believe that means they have the ability to say no to a mine or any other industrial project in the country, whereas the framework the government's working on right now, and this came out of the dialogue table, they committed to coming up with the regulations on how, how um, ILO 169 would be implemented, how consultation, and, and that sort of thing would happen. So that, as far as it affects mining, that was the one of the biggest things. They also didn't want mining on, uh, you know, sacred kind of lands, uh, patrimonial type lands. They didn't want it in protected areas. Um, and 
hydric zones that are designated. All these things exist in the country already, um, but they had a view of expanding some of those areas. So that that's kind of the background that's still out there. Um, and basically, you know, we'll see where everything goes. Um, but right now it, it's calm. The They've come out in, in feeling that they haven't totally had all their demands met by the government. But right now everybody's operating in the country. So it's, it's one of these situations that's um, day by day, week by week, month by month kind of thing, right? President, no, Scott, you want to jump uh, in there? I, Yeah, it might be where you were about to ask, actually, but I was going to say, I, I also think, you know, outside of that, what's interesting is the the support from the federal government has increased dramatically since we entered the country, you know, in 2014, yeah. and, and really, you know, the desire to bring in international investment, um, promote responsible industrial-scale mining versus, you know, some of the illegal mining that might have been going on in the country um, and really delineate between the two. Um, you know, these are things that are driving the sector forward, and and we do see that support from the government, um, which is which is huge, right? Yeah, and that was where I was going, is that Lasso at Ecuador, is, he's obviously very clearly pro-mining, right? So that, that Ecuador has hitched its wagons to resource extraction and exploitation for, for the good of its people, right? So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, new juris newer jurisdiction and, and there's going to be growing pains. And, and I guess that's 21st century uh, exploration, like it or not, is that Indigenous peoples, you know, is duty, duty, to, duty to consult, I suppose, right? So I guess off that as a branch, right? If now I apologize here, my mispronunciation, is it the Schwar people? Yeah. yeah. And so they're in your region, but if I'm not incorrect, uh, your condor itself is not on any indigenous land. No, it, it, we do have uh, indigenous land that we access. We own some of the surface ourselves. We have Schwar communities that we're working with. We have employees that are out of those communities. We have programs in and around the communities. And, uh, you know, overall, we have a, a positive working relationship with, with the Schwar in that area. Because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and then you can you can anticipate where I'm going here with this. What is your your on the ground consultation? Your on the ground community efforts. I know the Schwar. If you if you Google them, comes up that they you know are opposing a copper mine that's being under development right now because they figured they weren't consulted. Right. So you know they are flexing their muscles or or, or trying mm -hmm. to swing or swing their weight around a bit here. Um, and so I guess you know what are you doing in a proactive sense to ensure you have good relations with these people. Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing, uh, and again, this goes back to the local level, like we were talking about earlier, is understanding the needs of the communities. Um, listen, the companies are, that are in operating, you know, ours in particular, we're not out to be Santa Claus and, and do that sort of thing, but we do need to know what the, uh, what the needs are and how we can co cooperate and, and help the, the locals. We, uh, you know, for instance, we move drill rigs around all through the area and, and it's all man portable rigs. So we have a, a need for labor. We have a need for uh, buying fruits and vegetables and, and goods in the local community. We have a sort of an obligation to help with things like education, health, uh, environmental practices that. So, you know, those are kind of the cornerstones of a lot of the, the social work that we do with within these communities. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you look at, most of the uh, communities around the mining areas, particularly in, in poor areas in the developing world, 
you know, at the end of the day, people want to have jobs. They want to have opportunity, you know, for their family, no different than you or me want a better future for their family. So that's kind of at the core of it. And I think you really have to listen and respect, you know, what their values are, how they look at things and, and what their needs are. And, and work with them the best you can in mutual interest. And, you know, that's kind of how we've approached things. And, you know, our group has worked with indigenous communities in a lot of different countries. And, uh, you know, I think um, Ecuador has, has been pretty good in, in the context of the Condor project. And, but you, you have to devote a lot of time to it. You know, we have a lot of people working on it day to day. We use uh, outside consultants to help us. Um, you know, do the right things. So I spend a fair amount of my time with it as well as government relations and trying to bridge both of those. So, you know, I hope that answers your question. No, it absolutely does. It provides some some understanding because again, I circle back to a point I made previously is that part of my own due diligence, you know, again, if if a company, if everything's perfect, there's no reason for me to invest because I'm not going to see any price appreciation. It's finding those, those projects, finding those companies where, there's a fly in the ointment or there is a perceived, you know, fly in the ointment, perceived issue, perceived flaw that if you, when you actually dig into it actually is surmountable. Right. And so I talk about the prospectivity for LumenX being one thing that draws me to it is that you, you have this valuation that maybe some people are iffy on, but there's a path forward there. Same thing with these, with the Ecuadorian geopolitical situation, right. It's in the news for the wrong reasons lately. People are scared, right. There's a lot of kind of bad press, bad news, but if you actually drill down, it looks like there is a. It looks like it's not going to be a permanently disruptive or, or game-changing sort of thing, right? That that lasso remains pro mining. That uh, these are these these local communities. It is they are not opposed vehemently to mining. They they just want it done within. The, they they want to exercise some control, right? So my point is again for people listening is that you know these these soluble issues are where you create value for yourself, right? So. Yeah, no, just, yeah, thank you for that, Marshall Scott. Let's switch gears here. Oh, I was going to add one last thing. I mean, obviously, um, everybody operating in Ecuador, there's, you know, a political risk discount to the country. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I met with Lasso uh, last year, and we talked about this. um, And he said, you know, give me some time because we're looking at multiples of of PNAV for Western developers. And we were talking in the context of Congrejos. But he said, give me time and you'll see that the discount that you see for Ecuadorian developers and explorers will move up closer to their Western peers. And you know, he came out of banking and it was pretty interesting that he he had a, a view on that. So, you know, time will tell there. And then I think there is um, also with the, uh, you know, the demonstrations that were happening, if you go back and look at, um, you know, mining companies and other publicly traded companies in Ecuador. After that happened, you know, share prices took a hit um, because that was that was more geopolitical risk, um, you know, primarily coming from the indigenous communities blockades. So, uh, you know, and most of that was away from our general area that we operate, but it still affected us, right? And it affected pretty much everybody operating in, in the country. So, you know, Scott, I don't know your feelings about that talking to investors, but uh, you might add anything if you've got anything further there. No, I mean, it's a, it's a relative game. And obviously I think, you know, we've seen consistent improvement for a decade now, and we've seen some of our neighboring countries 
going the other way and just becoming more difficult for not only mine construction, but also just drilling and simple permits. So, um, you know, I think in a, an environment that's competitive for capital over the longer term, you know, that's going to help Ecuador. If I may now, I'll, I'll transition here uh, to our final kind of major uh, topic here and just around valuation, right? I always love a good, I love a good uh, PEA, I love a good 43101 resource, can really get into it. Um, so I will have these images up for my listeners, for my viewers, but I want to talk about, and maybe this is just more of conversation, less of a question and answer, because we've already kind of covered it here, but just for the sake of, of this interview, right? Base case, and I appreciate it. It's, uh, I, I want to ask you how you get to your base case. I always be interested in the math behind it, but uh, $1,600 US gold, uh, 16% IRR and an after-tax NPV at 5% of 387 million. Obviously, these days we're closer that well, I think we're at 1870 gold now or something, right? So if I if I go to the the table 226 and your 43101 or your PA 1760 gold gets to that 20% IRR 562 MB NPV. I don't need to read these out too much, but the point is that there is torque, obviously, and you're on the right side of of the you're on the right side of the gold price here, right? I mean, at at these prices, you're approaching. 23%, this is just my napkin math in my head here, but 23% IRR, which starts to become more, more respectable, right? Okay. Um, because this is, a, this is kind of the, the, the fly in the ointment, as I, as I said earlier, is, is this the high, high CapEx intensive? Um, and, like, and like Scott, you referred to it, right? People are looking for low CapEx uh, projects in this market, right? So I guess, and, and I know you said this, but just for the purposes, for the sake of having this being this section in this interview, could you one more time just run through immediate goals to improve the economics of Condor North so that we understand? I mean, you've got Los Cuyos, right? You've got uh, you're, you're doing underground versus versus open pit. Um, what yeah? What are you what are you doing to to get these economics? You know, close to that twenty five to thirty percent in our uh, IRR range where people are happier with it, right? Yeah, I mean, we kind of danced around some of the specifics, but maybe I'll step back for people because we didn't actually go through it. I mean, the the underground currently in the PEA that exists was about 10% of the mine feed, so about 2,500 tons per day. We scoped a pretty large project here at 25,000 tons per day to bring in the open pits. And, you know, that was, call it 190,000 ounces a year of production for 12 years. And in the early five years, you know, well over 200,000, but call it 220,000 ounces a year of production. So the project has scale, you know, you're bringing in the 3 million ounces of resources in that Northern area. The operating costs are actually pretty attractive. You know, $840, A6, you've got cheap hydropower in Ecuador. You've got, um, you know, subsidized diesel. The strip ratio on the pits was below two to one. The metallurgy and recoveries was very good. So all that helps. But because we had to go fairly large out of the gate at 25,000 tons per day, there is the $600 million of capital. So, you know, when Marshall talked about wanting to have a million to a million and a half ounces between Camp and Cuyas West, it's not just ounces, it's also, you know, where can you draw tonnage from? So in, our goal is to have something similar to Camp where you could draw, you know, 2,000, 2,500 tons per day to kind of feed between Camp and Cuyas, you know, maybe 4,000 to 4,500 tons per day sort of facility. Um, that's doing the high grade to start. And then, you know, if you want to bring in the pits later, uh, that's all optionality, right? But but to your point, um, you know, there's a lot of gold here. It's it's well understood. Um, there is a lot of torque at this project, not only at Condor North in the PEA area, but you've also cut the 3.6 million ounces 
city in Santa Barbara, um, which only gets larger at higher gold prices because that's drilled off quite deep, actually. So there's a lot of optionality for some of your listeners here who believe in a, in a higher gold price like we do. And I have a question. So, yeah, you have a lot of inferred ounces, which are, aren't counted as, as such, right, or aren't counted in the economics of it. But what I guess what's left to, I mean, if I look at your your, your pit models, right, you have a lot of inferred ounces in the in the pit-constrained resource, which is nice. What what do you have left to do to upgrade those to M&I? Well, so on the underground, which we're focusing on now, mm -hmm. you know, what's your view on the space? So we're drilling on 75-meter centers for inferred. Um you know, probably have to at least half that um, to, to get that up to indicate it. Um, so probably, you know, somewhere in like 30 meter type spacing uh, to get that up to indicate it, to, to use as a reserve in a, in a PFS or a feasibility study. Mm -hmm. um, so that would, you know, I don't have the exact number, but it would be probably pretty close to, you know, doubling the drilling. Is that fair to say, Marshall, in your view? That's, that's probably about right. So that would be on the on the uh underground portion now on the pits you know there is some indicated already um you know it's more homogenous you can drill on wider spacing um so that that wouldn't be as much um incremental drilling as a percentage of what's already been done um but you know you would want to get everything you wanted in your mind plan to at least indicate it uh to use in a pfs or feasibility as a reserve and then, so your your twenty twenty three drilling is this mostly step out and mostly exploration drilling still, or what's what's the what does it consist of? So most of it is definitional drilling to understand the scale of the Cuyas West deposit. You know, right now we've identified about a four hundred meter strike length, and we've drilled it probably down to about two hundred and fifty three hundred meters vertical. So we want to understand if there's more strike length we could add to it, and then continue to drill it deeper. It's kind of interesting. Um, as we go deeper, we've seen higher gold grades. Um, but again, we, you know, we're in the initial drilling phase. We only have somewhere on the order of 16 holes. We have a drill drilling right now. Um, so the idea there is to get more confidence and understand the scale of Kuya stress. And then to go back into the camp zone and to areas that we believe are open, that are decent grade and thickness to add some more drilling there and um, the other thing that we really haven't talked about, but um, we're starting to understand the structural regime quite a bit better. So we think that there's other Kuyas and camp zone type targets in the general area. So we'll do some initial work there that doesn't add resources at this point. But so when we go into next year, it's really whether it's a 6,000, 12,000 meter program, it's gonna be focused primarily on the, the Kuyas West additional drilling at the camp zone, and then some drilling at Prometador, the open pit target that we talked about, and, and just trying to get the confidence of that up. And, and then if we see it's real solid there, then we can work towards updating a, a new PEA with a lower initial capital, smaller throughput, higher grade. Um, one thing we didn't mention in the, 20, uh, in the PEA that we have out right now, um, about 87,000 ounces a year come out of the underground at, um, at the camp zone. So if you can get two of those kind of near, and these are near surface, low development costs to get underground. If you can get two of those going at once, Cuyas West and the camp zone, and you get up to over 100,000 ounces uh, from those deposits, and you have a lot lower initial capital and um, 
you know, you're looking at, you know, 4,000, 5,000, whatever the throughput tons per day for a CIL plant, it changes the whole story. And, and that's really where we're trying to get to this year. Yeah, it starts to feed itself. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Always an interesting conversation around how to just just how do you crack this nut, right? I guess one let, just one final question here around cap. I mean, again, this is forward looking statements, and I you know it's probably difficult, if not impossible, to have anything close to an accurate number. But I mean, do you have a a number in mind? Do you have a goal for capex reduction right now? It's six hundred fifty eight US uh, against an NPV around six hundred million at current price at current gold prices. Um, yeah, do you have a do you have a target or a goal or something that you'd be willing to kind of discuss? So if you could do the four thousand ton per day sort of scenario and Kuya's pans out and, and the camp zone, you know, you're sort of the mid two hundreds to to you know upper three hundreds range is what you would be looking at for, for capital. You know, and that's just obviously there's a lot of work to do and you would optimize it and all that. And you try to keep the cap as low as you could get it. But that's, that's kind of my gut. I don't know, Scott, if you see it different. No, sounds about right. I mean, I, you know, Marshall's on the board of Equinox gold and, and obviously they've just gone through a fair amount of construction projects. So, you know, he's got kind of a good view on current numbers and current capital for all these things. Yeah. yeah perfect. No, I appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Um, one last question here, and I appreciate your time here, so I'll try to be sensitive to the fact we're kind of approaching the end here in terms of scheduling. Just 2023 catalysts, right? You know, if, if, if you're going to, you know, you got two minutes to tell people what to expect and what to be excited for, what would you say? Yeah, so I think you're going to have, you know, continued drill results out. I mean, obviously, we've got outstanding holes from last year's program. We're continuing to drill right now, both from, you know, Camp and Cuyas West. And as Marshall said, we'll be getting into a brand new area, Permetador. So you're going to have drill results with three different areas of Condor North. I think you've got Anglo-Americans starting drilling soon on the copper property. Uh, so that has potential to be very exciting. Obviously, different commodity, different scale, um, but a great partner that's spending a lot of their own money and isn't uh, costing our shareholders anything. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to continue to work the land package here, too. Um, you know, we had BHP give us back a property called Tarkey uh, late or uh, well, in the middle of last year. Um, but, you know, we're seeing interest on some of our that and some of our other copper properties. So, you know, I think there's the potential for more partnerships there. Um, yeah, I think those, those are the main catalysts that we see and, you know, really just continuing to de-risk this project and, and make it something that uh, – it works in, you know, this gold price environment or, or even a lower one. Thank you, Scott. And yeah, we are kind of at the end here. So final thoughts, parting, parting thoughts, final words to you two gentlemen. Yeah. Take a look at us. Um, you know, every CEO in the world is going to tell you they're undervalued, but I think we're seriously undervalued. And, and you kind of keyed on that, Matthew, when you're asking about our cost basis for, uh, for ourselves investing and, uh, basically, I think if, if you're interested in the space and particularly the asset that we have, now is a good time to, to get serious about it. Mm -hmm. No, perfect. Well, yeah. And so, yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Marshall and Scott, I thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. If you tuned in, uh, if you want to know more information, head over to Luminex Resources. That's L-U-M-I-N-E-X resources.com. Very strong website, lots of good information there. And otherwise, for me, you can find me under the name Junior Resource Investing on Spotify, YouTube, and elsewhere. Uh, yeah, Marshall and Scott, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys.